welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Welcome back to Sacred Justice. I am Mia McLean and I am here with DJ. (laughs) (laughs) Don't start. Dr. DJ Ben Boswell. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we can have a game. Folks can make up a DJ name for me if they want, send it into Mia, and then she can embarrass me later on another podcast by using whatever DJ name somebody in the congregation came up for me. Yes, I, I I'm gonna do that. We're gonna make sure you email me those uh, promptly. Um, it, could be, it could be DJ Hairless. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I was thinking of something funny. I'm trying to anticipate people judging me in advance. You know, if I say yeah. it, then they won't. They won't say it. So, welcome to Sacred Justice this week. Uh, We are continuing our conversation, Ben and I, on what does it mean to be white? This is part Mm. two. So if you listen to part one, I'm sure you were able to hear some of the conception of the program, how it came to be, how successful it has been um, over the past year and a half at our church, but even beyond our church, uh, across the state, across the country, we have had People participate from all over this country. So this has been a success. So we're going to go a little bit deeper into what Ben is calling the playlist. What is what is the what does it mean to be white playlist? Uh, yeah, playlist is good because that makes it easy. But I call it like music for the journey. Okay. Music for the journey. Um, yes. But maybe people can come up with a cooler name than that. I'm happy to change it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So we're gonna get into that a little bit uh, later. But first I wanted to leave some space for current events. There is so much happening in our world right now. Um, And so at at the time of recording this, it is May 17th and you know, what is happening in Gaza, the Israel versus Palestine, uh, Palestine conflict. um, It is just getting more deadly by the day. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of conversation online that I've just been watching from a distance. I have not felt the urge to say much um, because I don't think I have an analysis that is particularly different mm. from some of the ones that I have seen that I agree with. And then there's ones that I don't agree with. But in terms of the ones that I've seen, I don't have anything different to add to the conversation. But I will say that it is exposing in this country, I feel, um, in this country that has been so white Christian dominant, it is exposing the uh, ignorance in mm. our faith communities. Mm-hmm. It is exposing the lack of interreligious instruction and engagement that should have, in my opinion, taken place when we were 
in elementary school. I mean, I mean, at least middle school and high school to be able to actually have a conversation about Mm. Judaism or about the difference uh, between Israel, biblical Israel and you know, the state of it. We didn't have this and we I didn't learn this in, in you know, whatever, U.S. history or world history in, in high school. I mean, I'm not sure if you did, Ben, but it is certainly exposing no. um, many clergy are exposing themselves to be ill-informed. Mm -hmm. So I've been watching. I've just been sitting back and watching people comment and trying to make sense and also watching people feel like they have to make a statement. Um, and what is our role when it, when it comes to stuff like this, um, this sort of obsession with, I need to make a statement on social media, or I need to make a statement on, in my sermon, um, even if I am ill-informed, if I have not done my homework. So mm -hmm. I don't know what your thoughts are around, around this, but I've just been, I've been sitting with the horror and just watching and trying to, figure out, you know, it's th this tension has been decades in the making. So this is not something new. Um, and I'm just sort of sitting with the disappointment in the lack of education around this earlier. Mm. On. I want to lean in for sure. I'm with you. I haven't really felt the need this time around. <laughs> right. I'm around to, to weigh in. I've said things about this particular conflict before. Um, but this time around, I'm feeling... A couple things. I really love the fact that you leaned into it theologically and spiritually here for us, because there is a theological malpractice being exposed right now that ties right into what the purpose of our podcast is, which is how theology and spirituality, toxic forms of that, um, can ruin the world in uh, in ways that are global. They can affect geopolitics for generations. And this is one of the examples of that. Um, there is, regardless of where you stand on, objectively on the rights of Palestinians and Israelis and the land, there is a Christian Zionism that has been nurtured inside evangelical Christianity and mainline, not just evangelical, and mainline Christianity that has led to this place where we're at now. Uh, also, in addition to that, a lot of guilt over Christian participation in the Holocaust. So many things that led to this moment where we're at now. And then, of course, nation building and um, Western arrogance um, and Western guilt all led to this point. Um, but also um, this favored status question with the nation of Israel related to Christian Zionism, as well as the racial element. There's so much here, in, but it's so complex. This is not a place for pastors who are misinformed or underinformed to dive in and offer um, narrow or shallow uh, or trite conclusions about what should happen. I mean, people have been calling for a two-state solution for hundreds of uh, hundred years or something, right? Like, or at least fifty years. So there's, um, there's, there. This is not a place for folks to jump in without information. I think, and I'm, I, I, I've studied a lot of this for a long time, and I feel even right now, just like there's nothing new to be said mm -hmm. that hasn't already been said about it. I, I do think for us, as in our context, one of the things we have to figure out how to hold, and this is a. This is an issue, particularly in Charlotte. One of the things that becomes very obvious when you try to do justice work in Charlotte is that there is a 
and inability to talk about this question without resorting to tropes and hurtful language and harmful stereotypes and harmful ideas. And therefore there's an avoidance of this topic, whether it be Presbyterians who support boycott divestment, not being able to talk to the Jewish community or the Jewish community, not being able to talk about Palestinians. There's a, just a very, there's a, it's a very hard thing for interfaith dialogue. It makes interfaith dialogue a challenge in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Something we need to really wrestle with uh, in the future. But uh, right now, one of the things that Christians have to figure out how to acknowledge and hold is two competing realities and two competing truths, which is on the one hand that the Jewish people um, do have the right to exist as a people somewhere in the world, A, and B, the right to exist on that land, right? So mm-hmm. A, B, both true. And then to hold that in tension with, and the Palestinian people have the right to be free and live as, and have a right to their own state, mm-hmm. their own self-determination. These two things should be able to exist together at the same time. And for whatever reason, politically, they cannot. And, and that's what I think Christians should be trying to figure out how to lean into and to acknowledge and confess our, our, how we were a part of the problem, how we are part of creating this problem. And, and I mean, when you're talking about the land issue and I was reading up on how, um, you know, a lot of the land was taken away from what is now the state of Israel, I mean, decades ago. Right. Um, and, so, but so long ago where, uh, the current inhabitants, it's not quite their fault. It wasn't like they took the land, right? Or, right. you know, you know, they're squatting. It's not quite that simple. Um, and I think about how in this country, we can't even talk about our own transgressions as it relates to mm. land theft. Mm. And so how can some mm. of the people making comments on Israel and Palestine really, you know, ha- have a strong opinion? I'm not saying you can't have a strong opinion, but how can you... Uh, some of the things that are being said amidst the reality that those same people don't say those things about what has happened here. It's oh, interesting my. to watch people go o- across the ocean. It's so the hypocrisy, easy for us. Yeah. The hypocrisy of land conversations yeah. by white Americans particularly, but a lot of other groups too, right? It's It, it reminds me of how... <laughs> <laughs> this past week, not to bring up another political event, the CDC changes course radically in the middle of the week, which, you know, really messed my week up. But I don't know about you, Mia, but I had a lot to think about after that happened. Um, but, you know, changes course and then the governor changes course. And there are all kinds of theories out there about where, why this came, when it came and how quickly it came. Lots of interesting theories. Um, but wasn't it interesting that those who were like, for over a year, we're like, I don't listen to the CDC. We need other information like Fox News and other, you know, legitimate places for information. Suddenly then when the CDC say you don't have to wear masks, they're like, aren't y'all listening to the CDC? Look at what the CDC said. So it's always opportunism. It's always we listen to whoever's giving us the information we want to hear. Mm-hmm. It's never we're listening to the science. Sometimes the science is going to say something you don't like. And... Are for me this week? It's like okay, we listened to the science before. Are we going to listen to it now? 
Um, yes, is the answer. But for a lot of folks, it was like we didn't listen to the CDC when they were telling us what we didn't like. Now we're going to make people listen to the CDC because they're saying something we want. And mm -hmm. this kind of hypocrisy is the same kind of hypocrisy that you see when folks are like, no, 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 they have a right to the land. It's their land. It was theirs originally. And then they're like, we're, we're like, well, what about indigenous folks or what about gentrification? You know, um, so, yeah, there's yeah. <laughs> the the parallels are, are there for us. Yeah. Yeah. All of that manifest destiny, all, all hmm. the things that 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 uh, Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism, as you know, Kelly Brown Douglas points mm -hmm. us to um, has enacted in this country. And I, I don't I don't know how to have the global conversation without also having the local conversation. It's very hard for me right now to even feel like I have to make a statement on something that I think is completely horrid and awful while also, you know, living down the street from people who are victim of something similar in mm -hmm. this country. And those same people aren't, you know, on their high horses here. Right. So. That's yes. interesting. Um, anything in your corner of the world, pop culture? Uh, uh, yeah, that you yeah. Want to bring up? Got a few, something on that for sure. I'm, I'm right now. One of the a big buzz is on. Uh, well, you know, buzzes sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. A big buzz right now on Amazon Prime is the new um, series, The Underground Railroad, which is based on the book by Colson Whitehead, which is a novel. It's not a fictional. It is non it, it is wait it is fictional um, and not uh, historical although there's lots of history in it it's like historical fiction um, and of course it follows a you know runaway um, slaves leaving a plantation and after having experienced horrific violence so similar to 12 years a slave and some of the many other stories um, but then um, the interesting thing is that they, when they go on the underground railroad and they, they get help as they go along, when they go on the railroad, it takes them to different states in different times. So different imagined states in the United States, like Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and they are in different imagined time periods throughout that state's history. So you can go from a certain moment in slavery to a different moment in slavery you could go from a moment in slavery to a moment that feels more like Jim Crow. Um, and so that's where the imagination of the author really makes the story pop and come alive. Um, and so it, it's interesting. I'm only a little ways into it now, um, working my way through it. It is, it's hard to watch, obviously, just like a lot of, um, you know, movies and depictions of slavery, like 12 years a slave and others similar to that roots. I remember watching as a kid with my parents, um, you know, I think it's an important piece of art, but of course the question always is, <laughs> you know, who is art for Mia? What do you think? Well, you know, I go to Twitter on occasion to see the people are talking about and the people on occasion, not, on occasion, <laughs> uh, the people are not, um, they're not here for it. the, the, mm. the black academics as we call it ourselves are not here for it. They're, the, on my Twitter feed, which is a certain brand of people that I follow, right? Sort yeah. of like black seminarians or like people, you know, people out of seminary, people who are in the academy, you know, uh, yeah. are very much like, no, we're tired of this. Um, and I think it's 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 aggravated by the fact that Fox has a new drama coming out, apparently called Our Kind of People, which is based on 
the book by Lawrence Otis Graham, um, mm. which is about, uh, it's not about enslaved Africans, but it's about African-Americans in this country who are sort of coming out of the reconstruction that time mm. period. So still, still in Jim Crow, still highlighting the segregation, um, and abusive, yeah. oppressive practices. But, you know, the people are just kind of like, can we get something <laughs> in the in the 21st century? And I think um, even when that uh, that uh, that series on another, I guess it was a movie called Them. Yeah. Um, no, on Amazon is like a horror sort horror of like, movie. Uh, what's that show we watched? Lovecraft Country. Yeah, but Them wasn't as well done. Right. That's the problem. It was almost like it, See, that's the thing, though. There's a real thin line, especially when you get into the horror genre, which, by the way, any story of slavery is a horror movie. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting artistic conversation for us to have. Um, but like Get Out. Yeah. The line in Get for Get Out to, that Get Out walked was so thin mm -hmm. between something that goes from being provocative art um to um i don't know what you would call it like clownish mm -hmm. or silly you know almost to the point where it's like um it's a disrespectful of the story mm -hmm. it makes a mockery a mockery really yeah. and that line is so thin i think jordan peele did that with get out but you could see how because because all good psychological thrillers and horror have to have some comedic element to it as well. Otherwise people can't handle it. They can't stomach the trauma of it all, the violence of it all, unless they're sociopaths or whatever and get off on that. So there's like this thin razor line. And I think what they were saying is them is kind of off the razor mm -hmm. to the mockery side where it's like, this is just mockery. However, I will say that a lot of white people who watch get out in my experience, because that's part of our curriculum mm -hmm. struggle with accepting it as art, as legitimate art. Hmm. Why is that? Because they think it's because of like the cursing and the comedy <laughs> and the slang stuff. And it like, it seems like it's not a serious piece or it's not appropriate for a professional curriculum. Right. Um, because it seems like it's, because of the way it's portrayed as horror, right? And so um, there are people who just can't watch it, which is interesting because Dr. Barry, who uh, Dr. Lucretia Barry from Brown Institute, who holds the group accountable, when that was brought up in the accountability sessions with the facilitators, she said this unbelievably brilliant thing. She said, isn't it interesting that folks in your group could watch 13th, but struggle with Get Out? Hmm where 13th is a documentary depiction of the history of from everything from slavery and lynching all the way up to the present day of mass incarcerations. It's historical violence. It's actually happened to real human beings, not a fictional psychological thriller. And yet white people had no problem watching that. Hmm. And she, her answer was that's because you've been conditioned as a white person to see historical black violence as ordinary from the day you were started elementary school. Because every textbook you've ever opened from sixth, second grade, first and second grade, all the way through college 
had depictions of historical violence of black people as ordinary part of our history, black, brown, and indigenous folks. So white people are conditioned to accept historical violence and see it with no problem. And yet a psychological thriller, and this is why I think Peel so brilliant, breaks through whatever wall that is, you know, breaks through that wall and actually hits the psyche in a way that jars them so much that they can't escape it without having nightmares. You know, I have, I am interested in that because that's what I think Lovecraft did also is the I'm terror. Done with Lovecraft. I'm done. I know, I know, but I'm saying like, there is a, I guess what I'm saying is there is a role for this art for certain populations of people. Um, I do think it has a powerful, can have a powerful effect in certain ways, not necessarily them. I think the things that make a mockery need to be Get rid of that. Get it out of here. But there are things on the line that walk the line. I don't know if Lovecraft was on the line the whole time. But anyway, it was like I do think it offers a picture of whiteness and a picture of horror that is jolting to the white subconscious. And mm. so are these things then for a white audience? You know, is this right? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, all of these movies and things, not even just the horror. So even the Underground Railroad, uh, some of the things that people are saying on Twitter is like, who is the audience? Who is this for? And we've been asking that question. I asked it with them. Um, and and par partially I'm asking it because sometimes I feel like the period pieces are actually more harmful than mm. modern day because we romanticize it as back then. So even with Underground Railroad, which is very similar title to the, I think it was HBO show Underground or some some channel yeah. show Underground with Journey Smollett, who's in Lovecraft. Um, but you know, even when you look at the the Underground that show, um, who is that for, right? And 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 um, I just get concerned more so less with the violence, though that is a huge piece, but more so with the time period. And so mm. I guess that's kind of my hesitation watching this new thing. I'm, I might give it a chance. I might. We'll see. You know, that's so interesting because one of the things that frustrated me about the Oscars this year, and I could go on and on and on about this, so I'll just keep it brief. But, um, <laughs> you know, not just Chadwick. I mean, not just Anthony Hopkins v. Chadwick. I mean, I could go on here. I have problems <laughs> with the Oscars. But the movie that won Best Picture, Nomad, is a modern day story of what's happening in America right now. And what it was up against was a story of the Black Panthers, right? Judas and the Black Messiah. So the period, we have a period piece about a history we don't understand and have totally turned in a particular direction because we don't understand it. Uh, and now we're trying to come to grips with it through art in a new generation, right? That juxtaposed with a movie of what is happening to people across our country right now of having to migrate for work, which is what Nomad is about. And yet that movie lacked the social and economic analysis needed to make it a powerful film, in my opinion. I watched it with great intrigue and I thought it was perfectly acted, but it wasn't about the acting that was the problem. It was that the story did not critique the economic system in American society for creating a place where you have to migrate to get any money, to, to make money and provide for your family. So here we had these social critiques available to us, one from the past, one from the present, one predominantly black, one predominantly white. And we chose the one that was white 
and did not have a social analysis or critique. Mm. So, okay, let me reframe what I was saying. When I said I don't like the period, just to be clear for others, but I I can do period if for historical. I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not gonna waste my time on a period fiction piece. And by historical, oh, okay. By historical, I mean okay. So you do Raisin in the Sun. That was an actual play written, you know, decades ago. That yeah. makes sense for it to be a period. It was written for that period. But the sort of like them, the sort of the new stuff that's fictional horror that is just. <laughs> But said, but they said it in the '60s as if they couldn't make the same argument setting it in the 21st century. Ah, they now I hear what you're saying. Now I hear. So what you're I, I get. I, I just want to declare that. I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah had to be set then because it's right. a historical piece, right? right. It, ha it happened. Right. Right. And how? Yeah. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think about what would be an example of a of a modern piece that's nonfiction. That's fiction. That's now. That's set in the present. I mean them. Was that in the that was actually set back, right? That's a period piece. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, trying to get, get, out. Out. get, get out. out. Get out. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's set right now. He yeah. could have set that in the 60s to be like, look at this horror that happened in the 60s. But he's like, no, right. people are doing he's this. Right this now. is happening right now, which is also why it hits the white conscience in yeah. such a powerful way. Yeah. Man, we could go on that. What is art for? Who is art for? What is art for? Oh, wow. what is the difference between fictional and nonfiction art. I'm glad you asked because you have this wonderful playlist that you've curated. <laughs> yes. DJ, DJ, DJ Hairless here. Um, <laughs> listen, you want me to talk about the podcast now? Go uh, talk about talk about the playlist. Talk about what made you decide to yeah. give up. Give, actually, give our listeners a snippet of how this plays into the course. I know it wasn't always a part of the course, and now you've added yeah. this element. So walk us through. Yeah, that. I was. Yeah, I was first. I the first group that went through my doctoral thesis, they only had readings, articles. So the Magnificent Eleven, as I call them, God bless them. All they had were articles that were hard to read. No movies, no poetry, no music, nothing. And actually, they did quite well with that. But um, as we moved into the summer, I got feedback from that group while we were in it during my thesis process. And one of the things that they said, I think it was, um, I don't want to name names because people who original series, but one of the participants said, you've got to have movies in this. There are so many movies and music actually came up too, because the, the Harriet movie came out while we were doing it. So that, that music came, uh, came along with the Harriet movie, which I, which is really good. Um, and that, that one song specifically, um, and so people were playing that at one point in the series. So I started thinking as I was developing this after the murder of George Floyd, when we we're getting ready to launch this with the city, I was like, oh, maybe we could take do the same thing we did with the readings and do other multimedia with it. So the, the, the pedagogy here, the philosophy is things written by uh, people of color about white people and whiteness. That is the that is the whole philosophy. So not stuff white people wrote about whiteness and not stuff black people wrote about what it means to be black in America or just racism in general, but what people of color have said about white people, because it's the mirror effect. It's sort of the Jungian psych subconscious mirror question. I'm trying to get people to see themselves through the eyes of another community of people, get white people to see themselves clearly and truthfully shatter that sort of illusion of denial. 
uh, and see the lie and the myth that they've been living in and how it's harming people for hundreds of years, right? And so that's what the articles did. W.E.B. Du Bois, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Cheryl Harris, Kelly Brown Douglas, Willie Jennings, ta Coates, et cetera. Then, so I added, when I added movies, it was Ava DuVernay, uh, and we have both um, 13th and When They See Us, which, in my opinion, is the hardest cinema ever in history made to watch, personally. I think because of it happening, you know, so proximate to our lives today, the way that she did it in series, I watch this stuff, as you know, all the time, and I couldn't get through the first 30 minutes of that. So that, I added that. When we have Spike Lee's Malcolm X, we have um, Jordan Peele's Get Out, we have uh, Ryan Coogler's um, Fruitvale Station about Oscar Grant, which of course precedes the Black Lives Matter movement, the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, is a really important story. So we have all these movies by black creatives, black intellectuals and creatives like Ava DuVernay now to add to it. And what that does is takes it out of the head and into the heart even more deeply because that's what art has the power to do is to shape not only the head and the intellect, but the, the, the body, the heart as well. And then, so as I was doing that, then I came across poetry, uh, Nikki Giovanni and um, Amari Baraka and uh, so many others. I mean, I could just go on and on with all the poetry. My favorite, Claudia Ranking, who I just love, who's amazing. Um, and, and I thought, wow, okay, if there's poetry, I wonder if there's music. Mm. And I I knew there was some like I knew there was like Nina Simone because I had yeah I'd been taught about Nina Simone by others uh, and and celebrated Nina Simone and and listened to some Nina Simone I thought okay but is there more is there more than just Nina Simone so I decided to try to create a playlist that followed the same pedagogical paradigm that it was people of color writing and performing music either that they wrote or that somebody else wrote about white people. Mm. So I could pick, there's a lot of songs about race. There yeah. are tons of race music. Um, I shouldn't say it like that because race music was a particular genre of music at one point in time, which just meant rec records written by black people. Um, but this is music written about race. There's a lot of that. So, but it was, so it took a little bit of extra curation to try to figure out, are they talking about what white people have done or are they just talking about the black experience? Are they, uh, and how do I use the playlist to create the same kind of mirror that the articles and the poetry and the movies did? So of course we, you know, it's easy to start with Nina Simone and the the song to me that's quintessential Nina Simone is Backlash Blues. Mm. I mean that, that is a song about white people. Mm. White backlash, you know? And um that to me is like the that is the quintessential song about white people and the reason I love it is because the blues the blues is sort of its own, it's a whole genre we could talk about. There's so much philosophy about the blues. Um, but that particular blues song, she kind of flips the blues and says, I'm going to give you the blues, Mr. Backlash. Hmm. I'm going to give you the blues, you know, because he's, white people are giving her the blues, right? These white people with their backlash are giving her the blues. But she says, I'm going to give you the blues. So she's like flipping it around and bringing it back on them. And of course, it's interesting. She talks about second-class housing mm -hmm. and second-class schools and 
uh, the politics and the economics of white backlash. And we saw white backlash. What is the quintessential example of our lifetime now? Never forget January 6th, mm. um, which we've all forgotten already. Um, that it, that happened, which was a the backlash that took over the Capitol. Um, and we've seen this backlash happening. Now we're seeing it all over the country again with voting rights laws, voting restrictions happening. That's another form of white backlash right now. It's actually tearing the GOP in half as we speak, as they're trying to figure out, is there a future for their party, given that they have to make a choice between this for or against democracy. <laughs> I mean, that's where they are. Yeah. That's really where they are. And so that song to me is so, so important uh, and sort of the quintessential starting point for the for the playlist. But I, I'd love to talk about more. Maybe you have some. You you helped me curate the YouTube version of this. So Yeah, I mean, it's um, much of this I knew, right? There's a few things. I'm like, huh, I never heard this before. Mm. Um, much of it I knew. A lot of it is, is woven into films now. Um, a, a lot of, I remember when TV and film started making that transition to having like, people who curate music. So you watch yeah. shows like Snowfall or you watch shows like Scandal. And I love their Snowfall, music. The yeah, I haven't I, I fell I fell off of Snowfall, but the music that that every episode had like a a banging song by like Nina Simone or somebody, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and the same thing with shows like Scandal and Grey's Anatomy, you know, Shonda Rhimes loves a playlist. And so you She was one of the stuff. first. She yeah. was one of the first to really figure that out. And like I got, we got to a place where I would say listening to, watching, let me put it this way, listening to television was better than what was on the radio. Yeah. She did that. Yeah. Like she was totally responsible for that change. Now the yeah. be you're better off getting your musical choices by listening to television and looking at what the credits are than you are by turning on the radio, whatever's on the, t on the radio, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. She was one of the first doing that um Issa Rae is also really good at a good playlist. oh my yes love her playlist for her show insecure Woo. so you know a lot of these i knew i know one, one of them that came up for me was strange fruit i actually sang mm -hmm. that in college a couple of times um sort of yeah. a standard yeah and a lot of people i mean that's to me like the form one of the foremost most important songs ever written uh, about yeah. that that because of the way, it's not just the lyrics, it's the way Billie Holiday used the song in her life, which of course now is the, the subject of a movie starring Andre Day, of which she was nominated for. Um, that was funny because some people were hating on that first too, and then she got nominated and suddenly all that quieted down. But anyway, mm. no, nobody liked that movie right out of the gate either. They were like, this is not, you know, and so, but now they're like, oh yeah, she's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I put that song on three times by three different artists, by uh, Billie Holiday, right, mm -hmm. who, who is the author and writer and perfecter of that song early on in American history and who gets arrested for performing it mm -hmm. because of the way it shocks white audiences and the oppression that she experienced through that song because of that song. Um, and then also by Nina Simone, who then took that song and then drove it home in a particular moment in American history and then I also landed it with Andrew Day's version that she does for the movie. So that's the only song I think I have on there three times because of its importance Yeah. in, in American history as sort of the quintessential kind of mirror move where it's like, no, look. Well, for also, it's just like 
that's like one of the most beautifully written things ever. The way that she uses the imagery of the tree and the fruit, uh, which, by the way, is perfect biblical imagery. How much does the Bible talk about good fruit, bad fruit? Yeah. The New Testament. So she's she's hitting on a theme that would have been in the conscience of the American South. Um, yeah. And it's just powerful, powerful. Yeah. One of the other ones, and I was in a show actually um, in New York off Broadway, and that song was in the show, Strange Fruit. Um, one of the other songs that I used to sing in musical theater was uh, What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue by Fats Waller. Yeah. And so when that came up, I'm like, oh, this is interesting, you know, because you forget these songs were pop culture. I mean, mm-hmm. A Misbehaving has been around for probably 40 years now. And so yeah. now that song is really associated with this very dark moment in Amos Behaven. Um, I, they felt the need to put this song in. Mm. And, um, and and so that's kind of my association before the original versions that came out, you know, so that, that was interesting to me as well. Yeah, and I had that one on there twice because, you know, I, I like the version by Louis Armstrong, which has a, a really awesome jazz intro, trumpet intro. And then I thought Ethel Waters' version was really powerful, the way she sings it. And I I have to say, I'm going to admit some just racial ignorance here, Mia. So I apologize for this. I I had a feeling I knew what the term was when I heard it, but I was I was not clear when she sings about high yellow. I had never heard the term high yellow before. Like, what is my all the guys like high yellow? They all want what is high yellow? I started looking it up, and I was like, I was on a whole internalized racism movement for myself for the whole mm-hmm. rest. Of like, man, this is a this is a thing. And I've been talking about it some with Lucy as well. She tries to identify herself and her skin tone in relationship to people on television and this phenomenon that she's watching grownish right now. And so she's learning all kinds of stuff that she didn't know before. She'll say, What are you what are they talking about? I look more like her. And and so I didn't I had no idea that that term even existed. This I mean, this- you wouldn't, which brings me to a, another point because so much of the language was insular mm. and they weren't, the artists weren't necessarily trying to explain it. They weren't trying to be dictionaries. And so there were, there are moments in these songs that I think are supposed to be explicitly communicating to white right. people. But I also think there are moments when this was not about white people listening to it at all, right? They yeah. were talking to a different audience then it ended up being uh, aired to, if that makes sense. Right. And I had to spend time. That's what took a lot of time because sometimes it was just straight over my head. I didn't understand what the lyrics were really doing at first. And then I would go back and listen to a song and I'd be like, oh, I see what they're doing there. Yeah. It's a whole move. Right. So like sometimes it's explicit, like um, like when you get to Jill Scott Heron who I love and who is another focal piece of this playlist. He's got a song, Whitey on the Moon. <laughs> That's a pretty clear song. And he knows it is. He even jokes about it in the intro. Like he's like, this was inspired by a Whitey on the on the moon. You know, I want to give credit where credit is due. But the whole point of the song is economically, how can we spend all this money to go to the moon, land on the moon, and his, he can't pay his doctor bills for his sister? Right. Who is who got bit by a rat because they're living in poor ghetto conditions that somehow exist in the same country where we built rocket ships that took human beings into outer space to land on the moon. How do those two things exist 
And he is explaining it through white economics, basically white, white money, white wealth, white power. And so that's explicit. Right. And also it's important to take a moment for those who didn't know high yellow whitey for, for you younger than geriatric millennials like myself, um, (laughs) you, you might not know that whitey was a, a term that was used to describe white people in the 60s and 70s. Um, it was not a term of endearment either. It was an explicit way of people of color reacting to the way white people were using derogatory terms toward them. So it was mm. a response, a creation of response saying, oh, you want to call me the N-word? You want to derogate my ethnicity? I'm going to call you this, right? Um, and so that's you'll. there are songs throughout that, like Sly and the Family Stone uses that term a couple times, Whitey in their songs. But then you'll have like a Jill Scott Heron song like Winter in America, where is which is written much later. And you're wondering, what is he really talking about? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. is, this, is this explicitly about race or not? So you have to kind of dig into the lyrics or even even who will pay reparations on my soul. You got to find a kind of figure out what's this really about? Um, and it takes it takes some time to kind of excavate through that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking about even, you know, in biblical writing, when you look at the book of Revelation, for example, and people were Mm -hmm. writing in coded language, it was on purpose. So you think about the history of African-Americans in this country who started with spirituals and having and songs like follow the drinking gourd. Mm -hmm. And they had to talk about something else to talk about what they were really trying to talk about. And it wasn't for an audience of white people or white presenting or white identifying people. It was for them to communicate a message um, and to see how that link has lingered throughout songwriting. And then of course you get to present day and people are writing about explicit police brutality, right? Which I think both are necessary, um, but the question of audience always comes up. Yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned police brutality because I was of course going to put the song F the Police by NWA, which was a song of my childhood um, that was important to me as someone who fell in love with rap early on in, in his life. But also I decided not to put it on here. And the reason is to create this very conversation that we're having right now. I found that it's not just present day conversations and songs that are written about policing. Basically every generation of artists of color who have written about whiteness and the black experience write about policing all the way back to the song, the gallows pole written by, uh, well, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but performed by early 1920s, 1930s blues singers like lead belly and lead belly has this introduction. And he says in the song back before they had prisons, they just put up some, some um, two by fours and, held you inside. And then he says, and the first person ever in prison was a black person. And all they were doing is holding you until your family to see if your family could pay enough so that they wouldn't hang you. And then sometimes they take the money and hang you anyway. Right. So he tells this story and the people listening, it's live. And the people listening are a white audience that seems so intrigued. Tell us about the gallows pole, lead belly. Tell us about this. It's disgusting. Really? Mm -hmm. Um, So, I, I think what I what I learned from going back through this, which was so powerful to me, was that police as the presenting issue and prison as the as the 
consequence of being a person of color in American society has been written in the fabric of music since the 20s, mm -hmm. uh, all the way up to present day. And so this is where a lot of white Americans and some people of color who look down upon rap music and hip hop music for somehow departing or being more aggressive don't understand that NWA is just the logical outcome of of the logical historical antecedent, right, of, of Lead Belly. This is what comes later. If you never solve the problem of police violence, asymmetrical police violence towards people of color in American society, it goes from Lead Belly to Nina Simone to, <laughs> to NWA, right? Mm -hmm. That's what keeps happening. So we have, you know, her just getting a Grammy for a song that does the very same thing right now, today. Like this year, she won a Grammy for her song, I Can't Breathe, which is, again, what comes after NWA. Not that there's nothing in between all these. There's every year, there's another generation. There's Public Enemy. There's Arrested Development. There's Tracy Chapman. I mean, just it's on and on and on. Almost every artist of color who talks about socially conscious, is socially conscious at all, deals, deals with the conversation around police brutality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting. So do you think that, I mean, you have so many songs on here and, and look, you, you all can go to the website and find the list because we couldn't, I think there's 123 songs, yeah. or at least different versions of songs, right? So uh, we can't go through them all, but I, I did want to comment a little bit on, and I hope I didn't lose my train of thought, um, on the artists who are outside of what has been traditionally deemed elevated as good music. Let's just say that the traditional good music. So right now rap in many places is still outside of that, which means yeah. white folk, basically it's outside because white folk haven't decided if they like it or not. Um, Eminem wasn't good enough convince, convincer for himself. No, um, I mean, well, well, we'll know once it's done when white folks can accept hip hop and church and then we'll have to have a new music genre right because because it seems like even looking back to the the music you have on here from the early 20s and 30s that a lot of these genres were outside of what was deemed acceptable or yeah. uh, it's not classical for sure it would never be a classic um, well that's interesting right that you would that we would not consider jazz classical music that well, that distinction in genres you do but I, the fact that many white people don't betrays their inherent racism well and and the fact that they're just starting to well you know now it's like a hip thing like now every you know so so many churches have jazz worship and things right because what are you talking like, about we're not we're not trying to be hip we're just <laughs> I mean, you know, now that it's acceptable enough to be in church. Mm -hmm. Is it though? I mean, it's still, it's still, it's kind of like I mean, people are still trying to figure it out, but you're right. It's there. It's there. And it's there in a way that hip hop is not there. It's there in a way that exactly I, maybe R&B is not there. And so are people going to still feel like they're going to say things in the genre of jazz or are they going to go to another genre, create another genre that is not under the white gaze? And so I feel like a lot of these songs were created not under the white gaze because they weren't considered acceptable music. But now, you know, 50 years later, everybody's a Nina Simone fan. Everybody swears <laughs> they love Nina Simone. Back and then, they probably wouldn't even shown up. 
no, if you go to Troy, North Carolina, the people are like, we don't like you coming here to her house, right? So, um, so I'm just curious about that, right? I'm curious about what has been created in the corners underground. Mm. I love that because I think it's just like any revolution or resistance movement. It starts in places where the empire is uninterested in it. Yeah. Right. I have. I actually have a quote from Joy James. And do you know Joy James, Professor Joy James? Mm-hmm. She's a. Um, for those of you who don't know, she is um, a chaired professor at Williams College in Africana Studies. She writes about abolition and all sorts of things. Um, but she says culture is created in the ground. It is not created through marketing. It is not cooked up in a focus group. It comes from the people themselves, the people most vulnerable to dispossession, to dishonor, to poverty, to bad schools, to bad health care. Mm. She goes on this long rant that I have so many notes on. But basically, she's saying, you know, the, the empire doesn't compensate you for overthrowing it. That's her quote. <laughs> so when I see these shows yes. pop up on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime or even even shows that make it to the movie theater, I I'm all, I'm already sitting with the question, right? If if you're seeing the popular genre of music making a comment on police brutality, I'm already questioning it because mm-hmm. I feel like the empire wouldn't even give you the money to disrupt it too much. Yeah, it's well, no, you're not. I don't think you're wrong. I think there's a process that happens of commodification. The empire's strategy to destroy revolution is commodification. We think it's like resistance or stamping it down. Now, sometimes that happens. So, for instance, the whole movement, Tipper Gore, we blame here, the whole movement of resistance against uh, gangster rap was about white people being afraid of the revolution that was in the music. It was not about some F word. It was not certainly about taking care of women because we know nobody cared about that for sure at that time. Um, But it was all about protecting their children from the the revolution inside the lyrics, Um, which when you start to resist something, it actually makes the children want to go out to it more. So they've learned from that strategy. Now what they now, and I think this has always been the case. If we can commodify it, we can control it. Yeah. So if we can sell it, then we can sell out the revolution from it. And, and therefore take a song like F the police and create a movie straight out of Compton. Now everybody's got a straight out of Canapolis t-shirt, right? (laughs) Like, get out of here. Uh, um, those are fun though. That was a, that was a moment. That was a fun moment though. Every straight out of everything, straight out of bed. That was my favorite <laughs> one. I'm straight out of bed, you know. Um, I, so it was so amazing that we're talking about this today because one of the most important conversations I've had on race recently was with a group of women about cultural appropriation, and I was describing to their sons who I'm work I was working with through some whiteness work. 17 year old boys who, of course, all white, but listen to rap. And I said, I was your age. And when I was, I wore I had a different Wu-Tang Clan shirt for every day of the week. I wish I still had these shirts, Mia. But anyway, I I had a different Wu-Tang shirt for every single day of the week. And I wore a Wu-Tang shirt with some large cargo pants and my Timberland boots. And I'm shaved head like now. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, there, and that was how I dressed every day. And I played basketball and I was part of these, this whole thing. And I, I got called names, as you can imagine. I don't even have to say them. People know what I'm thinking. Um, the W word. <laughs> and um, and I was I, what I was saying is I was saying what I didn't understand when I was 17 and I was doing that, which uh, has its own problem, is that the line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation is one I was unaware of at that mm-hmm. moment. And what I was telling them, what I thought the line was, was appreciation and support financially of artists is one thing, right? But then to imagine <clears throat> that I am either A, a part of the culture and B, understand the experience of those through whom the culture was born mm-hmm. or, will, or will ever understand the experience of those through whom the culture was given birth. That's where I go to appropriation. Now I'm appropriating when I get to that point. But of course, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts because I feel like the line is thin there between yeah. appreciation and appropriation. Yeah, abs- I mean, it absolutely is. I don't, I don't know of a time where I have felt like I was close to that border. I don't think I know of a time. There's mm-hmm. some complications with Pan-Africanism that happens mm-hmm. sometimes, but um, you know, I, I think that there's a way to appreciate and to learn from, but while also naming that it is creating a white gaze that might not have been intended. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even when you see documentaries like the Black Church PBS, right? Um, who was that for? You know, my, my argument was like the first the first half was for us and the second half was for not us. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, there there I mean, you can argue that none of it was really for us, but there um, there's this idea that we have to always be attentive to the white gaze. So there's a way to appreciate um, artistry with, with while also knowing that it was not intended for you to enjoy. Mm hmm. Well, that's the, and I think that's kind of getting back to the playlist. Yeah. My goal here is not to create an opportunity for cultural appropriation with this playlist, but to to create not the white gaze, but actually I would consider it to be like the mirror. Mm-hmm. You could call it black gaze. I think it's the it's the black gaze of whiteness, right? Which I, I call the mirror, and it's for white people to actually look in the mirror, which is them seeing black how black people see them, how people of color have seen them historically throughout history. That's a different kind of experience than saying, oh, I'm I'm D'Angelo's biggest fan and I understand D'Angelo, you know, and what he came through and how he writes what he writes. That's the, that's that's not real. Right. Yeah. So the and the point is not for me to go out and start, you know, wearing the Wu-Tang shirt again and singing Public Enemy, you know, for money on the street as if I could make any. Um, but like you see what I'm saying like that. The point is to learn how who we are from the music to see ourselves truthfully through this music. I mean, there's some appreciation too of just the brilliance of the Mm -hmm. movie itself and how cutting edge it is in every generation. You know, Sly and the Family Stone is cutting edge. You know, um, James Brown is cutting edge. And they're creating genres as you go throughout this. You could see everything from reggae to funk to hip hop to R&B to soul music um, to jazz over and every genre that has, you know, that has influenced then white people stealing that music for themselves and actually culturally appropriating was born through this, this playlist. And, 
it's important for us to kind of go back and see the roots of it and see ourselves more clearly. I'm hoping it'll do the same thing that the course is doing, which is to force a reckoning for white people to take responsibility for their whiteness. Yeah. Well, this is good. This is a good start. I do recommend that you all check it out. I, I'm going to be mm -hmm. honest with you. It doesn't make you feel good all the time, which I appreciate. And I think that church music can learn a lot from this, the, the genres that you have curated on this one mm -hmm. playlist. Um, I'm thinking about Strange Fruit. I'm thinking about Black and Blue and how they don't end with something happy. They don't end with a, a resolution. Um, it's yeah. just, it's almost like a lamentation. So many of these songs are a lament, um, a yeah. prayer of sorts. And I think there's so much that the mainline church in particular could learn from this playlist in terms of curating worship spaces that hold space for the disappointment you have in your neighbor. Yeah. Who has yeah. treated you like garbage. <laughs> and I, and I want to know, like, I, I wonder if we can play with the line between sacred and secular here too. Mm -hmm. And if people could go into this playlist thinking, okay, how would this song work in worship? And if it, if I can't imagine it, why can't I? Cause every song on this playlist is sacred. So yeah. why can't I imagine this song in worship? I'll give you a perfect example of, of one that I think is like, I mean, obviously um, rose petals is a worship song. Like well, that's yeah. later. That's yeah. yeah that's, and the seven last words of the unarmed is a classical piece of music that's been written that we should people should listen to. But I think, and I want to give a shout out because it's 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 a North Carolinian, and he just had an album drop this week, J. Cole. Um, and J. Cole has a song on here. Um, uh, it's just called Free, and it's got a picture of Michael Brown on the front. And I would love people. This is, by the way, like one of the most popular hip hop artists in America right now has this song i if you listen to it i think that is a worship song mm -hmm. to me yeah it's a worship song and but it doesn't sound i mean it doesn't sound like any worship song you're ever going to hear but it it is a worship song and i think that's what i want people to get into this especially people who don't like hip-hop and hate on hip-hop who've been through the whiteness series you need to wrestle with this music here yeah. and and understand what assumptions you're bringing to music when you're evaluating it and whether or not it is appropriate for worship, whatever the heck that means, mm. or, or sacred, which I think we need to have an expanded definition of. Yeah. Speaking of, lastly, shameless plug, you should register for one of the groups that are doing decolonizing worship. Woo! Yes, you should. Yes. Who's leading that? I I was I, I was unclear. Some woman. Some woman. Reverend so. Reverend McLean or something. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all can find it online. Um, there'll be four different groups that you can sign up for. Probably by the time you listen to this one, um, you'll be able to sign up for groups three and four, which happen in July and August. So anyway, we'll be talking a little bit about this, not all about this, but a little bit about uh, the, the bridge between sacred and secular. And um, as always, check out DJ Boswell's work on Spotify <laughs> and YouTube. DJ and Harris. Listen, there's DJs have many names, Mia. Um, but we want to hear from folks, don't we? Like yes. if you don't have, if there's a song on here and you need us to spend some time on one of our podcasts talking about it, send us some, I, you know, send us a thought. We want to hear yeah. your thoughts about this and, and what you learned and what you want us to talk about. Yes. All right, y'all. That is our episode for today. We will see you next week. Take Peace. care.
Friends, that was our episode this week. As always, please email your questions and your suggestions to Reverend Mia McLean at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Until next time, take care. This is Sacred Justice.